general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You are tuned in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Um, the time is 7 a.m. and it's Tuesday the 13th of April. You are joined by me, Fung. Uh, we've got Genevieve at the panel and we've also got Steph in the studio. How is everyone this morning? Pretty good. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Good. Freezing. Freezing, <laughs> but I was standing just outside the studio before and couldn't help notice how beautiful the sky looked. Yeah, actually, that's very true. Mm. A very, like, orange um, gradient. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just a mix of blue and orange. Um, Yeah, I just stood outside for a couple of minutes to try and take a beautiful Mm. photo, (laughs) even though it was freezing. Did you get one? I did. (laughs) Ready to go on Instagram any moment now. Yeah, speaking of the weather, it's a lovely eight degrees (laughs) at the moment. It definitely feels like it. But it is going to be a top of 20, uh, but partly cloudy today. Um, Yeah, it really, like, was a bit of a slap in the face, I think. Um, I mean, fair enough, autumn is well and truly, like, here. But, like, coming from having quite balmy few days and them just being slapped in the face on Saturday night <laughs> like on Saturday just with this. Yeah, I'm expecting another day later this week to be 28 degrees but I don't think that's <laughs> coming anymore. So Yeah, it's okay. I feel like I said goodbye a while ago and then it was like, oh it's still going. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I quite like this weather. It's yeah. kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alright. On the show, we've got a jam-packed show. Um, going to do some news headlines and then Fung's got a very exciting interview. I know I'm a bit nervous, but um, no, this is going to be really good. I have a live interview with Heather um, Karina, who is the founder of Scarletine, which is an online, um, it's a website that provides uh, lots of information about um, sex education and also consent education. Um, and we're going to talk about that uh, given what's been going on here in Australia, but also um, everywhere in the world, really, um, and talk about and discuss the importance of sex and consent ed in schools. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm really looking forward to that one, actually. I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, and after that, I spoke to Farida from the Renters and Housing Union. Um, so we spoke a bit about the end of the moratorium on rental evictions. 
Yeah. Um, it would be a nice segue, especially, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, um, talking to the AUWU a couple weeks mm. back. Yeah. Um, and obviously those, like, the end of the rental moratorium is kind of really setting in for people now. Um, and then just lastly, we're just going to play a little bit of audio uh, from the rally that was on Saturday. Uh, that was the rally for uh, Black Deaths in Custody. Um, we're going to be hearing from some of the families that uh, spoke at the rally. Also, um, 3CR's very own Robbie Thorpe. Um, I mean, it's a li- the audio is a little bit heavy, but extremely important. All the speakers were, um, I'm, I mean, incredible. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be right back just after this quick announcement with the news headlines. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Alrighty, you're back on Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to do some news headlines for you now. Um, first up, obviously, in relation to the um, Aboriginal deaths in custody and especially the protest. At least 474 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have died in police and prison custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody uh, handed down its final report in 1991. Um, for the first time, I'm getting this information off The Guardian, sorry. Um, for the first time, they published it in 2018, an exclusive analysis of 10 years of coronal data found 407 Indigenous people had died in police or prison custody since the end of the Royal Commission. That figure has increased to 424, and now today it stands at 474. At least five of those deaths have happened since the beginning of March this year. Um, Obviously, I know that there's a lot of people talking about this, and there's a lot of um, pain, and I guess it's becoming quite and especially for First Nations people, quite an exhausting conversation. Um, But I'm really excited to play some of the speeches and especially listening back to Marika Onis um, on Black Block yesterday. I mean, she's just incredible. But um, she said something really valuable that I think um, a lot of people should take into account and that's like this is the perfect opportunity to amplify the voices of families, the voices of First Nations people. And, you know, she made a really good point about, like, if you're a lawyer, academic or activist, you know, who may have been working in this place or space for a while, um, don't speak over the voices of those who have experienced this firsthand and don't speak for them. So... Yeah, I thought that was really valuable. Um, I just wanted to add on that, um, on the Guardian article that 
Genevieve is talking about, if you scroll down towards the bottom, there's a graph that shows the difference, um, uh, well, it's called, you know, case characteristics um, between 2010, 2021, and you can really see the difference between how um, people are treated, um, whether they're First Nations or, or non-Indigenous, and that first point there, care required but not given, it's staggering, like, the difference between, um, you know, if you are a First Nations person or if you're not, they are not getting the medical attention that they're given in custody. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm looking at that graph now. It's, like, less than half, like, of the percentage of non-Indigenous people. Yeah, insane. Yeah, it'll be great to hear um, those speeches from the rally. I was there and a few people called out the, um, you know, national mourning that was going on for Prince Philip, um, including the Aboriginal flag flying at half-mast behind the rally with the police watching over, which was very, like, visually um, telling, I guess. That's, like, haunting. Especially, I mean, Prince Philip is... <laughs> Not the best example of caring about, I think, the colonized countries in any respect, but also especially First Nations people. Um, yeah, it's been quite an interesting scene to watch, I guess, the cel- ce- celebrations for uh, Prince Philip's life and stuff. And, you know, there's been all these things of like, he was really into animal activism and like. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I don't know for sure, but yeah, I think it's, that's like a very visually haunting scene. Yeah. Yeah. And just that reminder of the royals. Mm-hmm. They're, they're still pretty big here. Always watching. Um, in other news, um, just wanted to mention uh, a great article that one of our co-presenters, Carnegie, sent through to us um, about an Egyptian um, Captain Mawa Al-Zada. Um, sorry for the pronunciation. Al-Zalada, sorry. Um, who was, after the news had broken about a huge container ship, um, the Ever Given, that had become wedged across the Suez Canal, uh, bringing one of the world's major shipping routes to a halt. Um, uh, Al Azada uh, checked her phone. Online rumors were saying that she was to blame. Uh, she said that she was shocked. Egypt's first female ship's captain. Um, I guess the kind of the article just talks about how kind of the blame was just shifted onto her in terms of how the ship got wedged, why the ship got wedged, and it kind of just really brings to the forefront a lot of the um, sexism that's still prevalent. Yeah, she wasn't even there. Yeah. (laughs) It says at the time of the Suez blockage, she was working as a first mate in command of the Ida (laughs) 4, hundreds of miles away in Alexandria. So she wasn't even on the ship. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, just that scene of her just, like, checking her phone and then being like, what? <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it's interesting to note um, in this BBC article, it says, at present, women only account for 2% of the world's seafarers, according to the International Maritime Organisation. 
um, and she says that it's not the first time that she's faced challenges in uh, this industry. So it's really not a surprise. Yeah. 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 Um, and obviously just like even the, um, the go-to of being like, okay, well, who's to blame here? Where's the, <laughs> the first female that I can see? Oh, yep. There we go. Sweet. Mm. <laughs> it also, yeah, mentions that the article was in English, so it was difficult to kind of track where yeah. it was spreading. Um, but it also mentioned she's taking her final exam to attain full rank of captain next month. So that's awesome. Know, that's a great thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, also in, uh, new news that's just come out in the last day or so, um, menu log, I think this is a huge, yeah. but menu log announces pivot towards employment model for all couriers within coming years. So, uh, menu log says it's moving away from controversial independent contractor model favored by its gig economy rivals. So like Uber Eats and um, Fedora, uh, and wants to have all its curers employed by the company within a few years' time. So, yeah, the move is designated to differentiate itself from places like Uber Eats and Deliveroo, um, and it will give uh, menu log couriers uh, more rights when it comes to, like, obviously a minimum wage, yeah. um, sick leave, all those kind of things. So, I mean, this is... Yeah, and hopefully some standards around safety. Yeah, definitely. Because um, I know that a lot of people in the recent years have criticised not just Uber Eats, but Uber in general, um, places with a model that kind of can not really take responsibility for what happens to um, their drivers and couriers. So, I mean, this is a really big deal. Um, and I think if they can pull it off in a effective way then it'll definitely be a uh, model for all the other companies definitely and let's hope that this is actually the beginning of something and mm. i think many log they're going to have a lot of people who are watching very closely because you know especially during lockdown and even post lockdown um i mean delivery drivers food delivery drivers were working throughout the whole thing um, and really allowing, I guess, everyone at home to still eat mm. and like support their favorite restaurants and yeah. everything. So, um, yeah, hopefully they, they get the, the rights and, and the kittages that they deserve. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and there's an article on The Guardian and it mentions that this kind of sharing model, I guess, um, has spread to other kind of industries. So there's a disability service that matches um, workers and that maybe even Menulog will influence that, which has yeah. got a lot of potential. Yeah, I just think um, especially for global industries where, you know, it's hard to kind of have unions that, um, I guess, uh, speak for the workers. Um, I mean, you can see it with a lot of the tech big tech companies. So I guess if you can like really, um, I know that Manulog are working with the Fair Work Commission here in Australia and also consulting with the Transport Workers Union, um, which is a really big deal as well. If you can kind of like um, facilitate a way to bring like the work with the union and work with the local government um, in a way so you don't kind of side sweep 
all of these workers' rights because just because you're a global company, um, yeah, is really, really important. Um, also, just lastly, um, an ABC article um, into, uh, I guess, well, Ramadan started on the 12th of April, I believe, and the ABC presented an article that um, is titled Muslims Attending Mosques During Holy Month of Ramadan Fear Ongoing Hate Crimes. Um, it just talks a little bit about how most uh, Muslims around the world, um, the Islamic holy month of Ramadan is a time of peaceful worship. But as the uh, auspicious month draws near, some of Australia's mosque leaders fear the worst after enduring years of hate crimes. Um, specifically, they talk to uh, Brisbane's Hol- Holland Park Mosque leader Ali Kadri, who told the ABC that he's so worried about repeated hate crimes targeting the mosque that he believes it's only a matter of time before what happened at the Al Noor Mosque in Christchurch in 2019 is repeated. And this is just a quote from him. If we continue the path we're going and continue to ignore the real threat which is posed by these right-wing extremists, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> what yeah. did you guys think of the article? Um, pretty, yeah, very important. I think it's interesting given one of the kind of outcomes from the Royal Commission into the Christchurch attacks was that Muslim groups had been warning the government for years that something was going to happen and, you know, there weren't any protections put in place. Um, yeah. The article mentions that more than half of the mosques they surveyed in Australia had experienced targeted violence between 2014 and 2019. Um, and also that so a lot of people are going to the mosque with a backup plan. So it kind of yeah changes the experience for people. Definitely. And like even not taking seriously... Um, the types of violence they list is like arson, physical assault of attendees, graffiti, vandalism, verbal abu- abuse, and online abuse. Um, and, you know, in some extreme cases, some mosques even received hate mail and death threats. Um, it's just crazy how this stuff isn't even being listened to um, or taken seriously. Yeah, and there's still, you know, all of the anti-Muslim groups are still online on Facebook. Um yeah, despite people calling to ban them. Yeah, and I think especially in light of what's happening in Europe in terms yeah. of the laws there with the hijab um, and discrimination against uh, Muslims in general, like, I mean, <laughs> if it's not kind of getting uh, right in your face as it is, then it's blatant, like, discrimination, Um and especially, yeah, we can't really ignore the fact that it's not happening here in Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, all right. Well, we're going to play a quick track and then we've got a very, very exciting interview coming up. So we'll be right with you. Down by the Sing and make the black heavens cry When Kaliyara thought of nourish that land 
So that was Yurila by Spinifex Gum, which is actually a collaboration between Felix and Oli from the Cat Empire and the Malia Choir, which is an all-female, all-Indigenous group. So earlier this year, a petition was started by Chantelle Contos calling for more comprehensive and holistic consent education in New South Wales schools. Here in Victoria... The government has recently announced that consent education will be mandatory across all public schools. To speak with us about the importance of sex and consent education, we are joined by Heather Corinna, the founder and director of Scarletine. Founded in 1998, Scarletine is an independent feminist grassroots sexuality and relationships education media and support organisation and website. The organisation provides sex and relationships information and support for young people worldwide. Good morning, Heather. Thank you for joining us on 3CR. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's an exciting moment in Australia and Victoria around this, so I'm happy to talk about it with you. Yeah, so we've seen in the media here in Australia, but also in the US, we've got, you know, series of allegations made against politicians here such as Christian Porter and I know in New York um, against uh, Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo um, and that really oh, has... Oh, in the United States, the, li- the list goes on and never ends. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, here. here too, um, it's really right. started um, a conversation about sex and, and more importantly consent education in schools. Um, in your opinion as the... Um, creator and founder of Scarletine, what should sex and consent education look like in schools? Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting to me is that we think about consent education as only something that should be tied to sex education, right? When, of course, you know, ultimately consent education should start as soon as we start anything, right? We should be asking each other and always asking children for consent about everything, you know, from from minute one. And so, I, you know, I think one of the things that's so tricky about all of this is often the culture of so much education is not particularly consent-friendly in the way that it's set up, right? There's kind of so much that's dictated and so much where where children and groups of children are ordered to do things rather than asked to do things and where everything's set up that people have to do things or else it all falls apart and there's not really a lot of room made in really big group settings, right, where you've got really big groups of children and, you know, one teacher or very few staff people to really kind of do the kind of one-on-one active consenting with with everything, right, with inviting someone to come and sit down, with asking someone if they'd like to answer a question, with inviting someone to go do something else. So, I mean, one of the things that certainly should happen is that no one should be waiting until they're in high school to get information on consent because, of course, you know, we all need to be doing active consenting way before anyone is doing anything sexual. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think the conversation actually put out an article recently talking uh, to parents about how they can talk to young children about consent um, in regards to points of, of like what you were saying in terms of sitting down, but even 
you know, giving hugs and, and, and kissing family members. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, and then, of course, you know, when we're, when we're giving sex education in schools, you know, historically, so much of sex information and education that was in schools really wasn't about, you know, interpersonal relationships and interactions. It was about reproduction, right, and just about reproduction and body parts and, you know, mechanics, right? And so some of it, again, is kind of we've done so much of divorcing these things as to kind of untangle them from each other when really we need to be teaching them together, you know. So some of it is is that when we're talking about sex and consent and we're doing this kind of education, we really need to do them together and we need to not try and take out, you know, the human interaction parts of all this, but we need to have it baked in to everything we're doing because, of course, if we don't, we can't expect anybody to just figure it out, especially, again, you know, like we were just talking about, in a world where, you know, it, we're, it's not underscored by consent, the world that we live in. We don't come into our sexualities with this wonderful foundation of consent and everything else where it would just be obvious to us that, of course, just like with, you know, hugs and touches and haircuts and doors and everything else, of course, consent should be part of it. Consent is so much not a part of the rest of our lives that it's not surprising that for so many people, it's also not a part of their sex and sexuality. Yeah, um, that would be quite revolutionary to start consent education, like you said, from day one and in all contexts, um, so that when you do get to discussing or exploring your sexuality with you know yourself and other people you already have a strong foundation um uh about your own boundaries and and um and seeking consent from from others um you were talking about you know sex education in the past and how it focused on reproduction and i know um on the scarletine website you mentioned the history of of um uh of sex ed and how it's very much rooted in abstinence um, what are we seeing or what would you like to see from, from sex education? How do we make it more inclusive, um, more relevant um, and, and not just tokenistic? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I think, well, you know, one of the things that I think has always made it a lot easier for us is that, you know, Scarletine started based on the questions that young people were asking us, right? We didn't start Scarletine by saying, we have all of these ideas about what everybody needs, and we're going to start this thing based on our ideas about what everybody needs. I feel like a lot of sex ed kind of starts from adults' ideas about what young people need, whether those ideas are based in what adults thought we needed when we were younger, or those ideas are based in public health initiatives, right? Whether it's like, oh, we have to reduce uh, teen pregnancy, or we have to reduce rates of chlamydia and HIV, right? I mean, like, there's some other agenda, you know, and I think one of the easiest ways to make things inclusive and to make sure that we're not tokenizing and to make sure, again, that the education we're giving is relevant to the people we're providing it to is to make sure that it's really coming from them, 
right? So in order for something to be inclusive, we have to make sure that who's making that education, you know, that it's nothing about us without us, right? So that who's making that education includes a diverse array of people so that you don't wind up with, you know, I feel like one of these things that we're kind of seeing a little bit of as more places try and be inclusive is that you kind of get the same old stuff that you get, but then there's like this add-on. It's like, but it's okay to be gay, right? Like, Mm -hmm. or it's okay to be trans, or some people are this, which is not really inclusivity, right? Inclusivity is when we can all see ourselves somewhere in the picture, right? It's not that there's, you know, still this kind of, uh, you know, um, default group, and then we're all tiny satellites, right, that come to the side of the group. It's that the default is diversity, right? And so in order to really make it so that we're inclusive, we really do have to change that default from thinking of the default as white, as cisgender, as heterosexual, as able, and think instead of the default as diversity. You know, and if we do that, I think it's a little bit easier to make it inclusive when we make that our starting place. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head with, like, saying, you know, we're we're teaching sex education, but, you know, it's okay to be gay and it's okay to be trans, but not speaking in any sort of depth about, you know, uh, pleasure when it comes to that kind of thing or, like, what that, like, looks like or exploring that in any depth. So, yeah, I feel like it's uh, that tokenistic thing at its, like, most prevalent yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, Scarlett, you know, I've made it as a queer person from the beginning, right? So, you know, I, I've never had a life experience as a straight person, right? I can't tell you what it's like to be a straight person. And most of most of the material that's been made at Scarletine over the years has been made by queer people. And yet, you know, we've we've never had straight youth say to us that it doesn't really work for them. Right. Like, I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing, which is that in some ways, kind of when you come from a perspective that, again, is queer inclusive, that's disability inclusive, when when you come from these places that include more marginalized perspectives, places that are, you know, people in places that are less marginalized, it it still works for them. Right. (laughs) Like, I think that's the whereas the opposite is not so true. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think a lot of conservatives really pervert that, um, and, and call it an agenda, but it's, it's not an agenda. Yeah. It's, you know, it's reality. It's people's lived experiences. And like you said, Heather, if you make things inclusive from the very beginning, you're casting a wider net and you're able to, um, affect and reach so ma- like everyone pretty much, um, instead exactly. of a really small group of people. Um, I know this may be op- um, obvious to a lot of us here, but um, just for people who uh, are interested or, or not sure, what outcomes can we expect from really comprehensive and holistic sex and consent education? Well, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that gets so overlooked all of the time is that... It's a, everybody kind of makes it a question mark as to like why we still kind of can't solve our 
worldwide cultural problem with sexual violence and seems to always miss that we still have a, a chasm in terms of a lack of worldwide sex education, right? And really good, comprehensive sex education that includes really good information on consent helps to prevent sexual violence, right? If you don't, if you understand from, you know, as early as you can understand that sex is supposed to be a choice for you and you have different expectations. I mean, so many people grow up with the expectation that sex is going to be not a choice for them, right? That it's compulsory in some way, whether it's compulsory that you need to do it, you need to do it to someone, or whether it's compulsory that you need to accept it if it's just something that someone does to you, that you need to do it whether or not you want to, right? That whatever your pace is, you don't really get to have your pace, right? Like there's a certain time at which you just have to, even if you're not really feeling that that's right for you, you know? And so there's so many kind of parts of that that really good sex ed can untangle that really kind of break so many of the spells of the beliefs that we have that really hold up so many things that, make it so easy, right, for so many of these systems of sexual violence and coercion and, and power, right, like really intense, misogynistic, sexually violent power to stay in place are these belief systems. And so I think, you know, that's, that's a big deal. So people, and, and then of course, you know, people having healthier relationships. Um, period, when, when we're talking about that, but then just in general, healthier relationships with their own sexualities, people having improved self-esteem and confidence. You know, again, when we're really being inclusive about sex ed, it includes a wide range of bodies, body abilities, body disabilities, people having um, better body image and a sense of their bodies. You're going to have people that are going to be engaging in safer sex using more birth control because they'll know how, <laughs> mm-hmm. but also they'll feel more empowered to do it because you have more people that are supporting you and actually doing it rather than kind of scaring you out of it. Um, I mean, obviously, like, I could do this all day. I know I sound like a Tupperware lady, right? <laughs> something, But, you know, I mean, I've, I've done this now for almost 25 years, and I uh, working in sex ed is not exactly the most, lucrative work that there is but you know one of the reasons that sorry my dog apparently has something to say about this um (laughs) that so many of us stay in it is that you know is really this is that you know we see even when we work with people kind of immediate outcomes but we also kind of you know our eyes are on the long-term prize in terms of knowing what's been missing in the world and where this can bring us yeah, and it sounds like, you know, it's constantly evolving and shifting too. Um, you know, new things come up or like you said, you identify gaps or what's missing that's already out there. Um, unfortunately, we um, don't have, <laughs> we could talk about this for the entire show, but um, before we sure. let you go, uh, if there are people, parents or young adults, anyone really who would like to know more about Scarletine and, and the work that you do in the sex and consent education space, um, where can they where can they go? 
Well, the best place to go is just to go to the website for Scarletine, which is just www.scarletine.com. Um, and it's, you know, again, we've been around for, we're getting close to 25 years, so it's thousands and thousands of pages. It's it's a library, and we're we're easy to find on social media, and, yeah, we're responsive people. So ask questions, um, track us down. Awesome. Well, perhaps we'll get you into the studio again um, sometime in the future, Heather, to to talk about what progress we've, we've made or um, and what's um, changed throughout the year. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for, for joining us from, from Chicago and speaking to us today. Sure. Thanks for having me on. That was an incredible interview with uh, Heather. Oh, I'm- from Scarletine. Um, well done, Fung. That was awesome. Um, we're just going to go to a quick announcement, um, then we'll be right back. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, the time is 7.42. Um, we're about halfway through the show. We're going to pay you a track by one of my favourite uh, London-based uh, rappers, Little Sims. This is an album that came out during lockdown uh, last year. I think it's very telling of how everyone was feeling during COVID. Um, uh, but especially, I think, Little Sims explores, you know, personal anxiety and loneliness in a way that exudes such honesty but this song is called you should call mom yeah yeah Jello in an ice cream tub, that's the eye for me, nigga. Never run time, it's the black in me, nigga. Balance out the lows by any means, now I say hi every day, keep a pack on me, nigga. I eat, everybody eating, make 50 in a day and run it back to my niggas. I know how to be selfless, I know how to be the opposite, thin line in between. Left made right when I'm in between. Baby, show me something I've never seen. Guess we all trying to get by somehow. Somehow we're finally living what I dream. Somehow I managed to reap what I sow. Somehow I managed to see what I'm old. Young blood, oh so can I? Die once and be born again Rap race, hope he wants to be a millionaire You ain't got the answers, call a friend Warning them, not everybody has pure intent We all on the same boat Keep your head up, stay afloat Man, it feels like the zeitgeist If this 2020, there ain't no hindsight If you see death as the next chapter, can you die twice? 
business crabs in a barrel like everybody's in this times we living in don't seem real but it was never a fairy tale to begin with i just build my zoo to stay in tune cook my meals and make my tunes like there's fuck else to do ain't that true though i've always appreciated solitude yeah i've always been cool with being low-key don't see me out in much shot me i was on job trying to get my coin you was running on e i was running with ease that's facts i handle beats and i handle bars that you wouldn't believe trying to maintain my sanity a blind fight mm, is anybody in their right mind if this 2020 there ain't no hindsight if you see death as the next chapter can you die twice yes life forced me to calm down with my mind right living day by day sleepless night by night bored out of my mind how many naps can i take how many songs can i write That was a song by Little Sims uh, titled You Should Call Mom. And I love the lyrics. I just like don't know me, don't know how many naps I can take. Just like such a lockdown feels. <laughs> um, before we play um, a really awesome interview done by uh, Steph, just going to go to a quick announcement and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Next up, we've got an interview with Farida from the Renters and Housing Union of Victoria, also known as Rahu. So Rahu has been providing support for renters throughout the coronavirus pandemic. And at the end of March, we saw an end to protection of renters from eviction, which has obviously really impacted people's housing security. Here's an interview. Thanks for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. A couple of weeks ago, we saw changes to the coronavirus rental protections in Victoria. Can you talk a bit about these changes and how they impact renters? Yeah, so there's... Um, I, I think the biggest one is that notices to vacate are back. So during the eviction moratorium, which was from March 28th last year until March 29th, that's just gone, you couldn't be issued a notice to vacate for if you were in rental arrears, say, from COVID-19-related reasons. Um, yeah, but that's that's over now. Um, now people who are coming into rental arrears from now on can be legally issued a notice to vacate and while well, a notice to vacate is not the same thing as an eviction there's a bit of a misconception about that the notice to vacate is only the first step towards a process of eviction um, however it's very concerning nevertheless that legally they're able to start that process now because yeah it's just wrong because the pandemic's not over yet and also the economic impacts of the pandemic are not over yet at all. And 
yeah, they're probably in the process of getting worse now that JobKeeper and JobSeeker have both been like cut down or cut. Just coming out of Treasury the other day, we heard that they estimated 150,000 people were going to lose their jobs because of the end of JobKeeper. Is it fair that those people are going to have to yeah, be expected to pay uh, the rental arrears that they're going to come into? It's not their fault they've lost work. It's not their fault there's a global pandemic. It's, it's just not right. So we need what we're calling for is to extend the rental protections of the moratorium. Um, now's not the time to be ending them, but also to cancel rental debt because all those people who lost work during the pandemic and have come into rental arrears because of the work they lost, while they still can't be evicted for the rental arrears during that period, people still shouldn't have to pay for, they shouldn't have to pay up the rental debt they accrued during the, pan, the lockdowns last year um, because of the work they lost in that time. It's not fair that people lost work during those lockdowns. It's not fair that they still owe rental, like rent money from that period. They should just not have to pay that rent for that period. Um, really, we should have never had to have paid rent during a pandemic in the first place. Everybody should have just been supported to have stayed at home, stay safe and not spread around the coronavirus. Yeah, everybody should have just been supported to, to do that during the lockdowns. Yeah, it's very conflicting messaging yeah. to, like, stay at home but go to work. You know, how do those yeah, yeah. sit next to each other? Yeah, and migrant workers did not have the luxury of staying at home. And, yeah, when they lost work, like, that was devastating. A lot of migrant workers still haven't found work yet, and they've still yeah. got access to nothing. What have you heard from your members about the recent changes? So that kind of end of March mm. shift. Yeah, what are their stories? Mm. Well, first of all, the a bit of background information that I think is important is that a lot of people don't know much about their rights. A lot, a lot of tenants, we, we don't know our rights when it comes to renting. I've only, I'm only just getting up to the speed now in Rahu. I've been renting my entire adult life for the past 20 years. I've never bothered to find out what my rights are. And a, a, a lot of people, we talk to people on the street who are the same. They, they don't know their rights. A lot of people don't even know there was an eviction moratorium on. Um, and when there's that backdrop of ignorance, um, real estates and landlords really milk that for all that it's worth. And so... They, they're very cocky a lot of the time. And so what we're hearing from Rahu members and from others is, yeah, illegal notices to vacate um, are being issued. Um, landlords and real estates have seen that end to the eviction moratorium as a red light. There's still a lot of like legal barriers against notices to vacate. I think any notice notice to vacate issued before April 11th is invalid. Nevertheless, they were starting to issue them, you know, right away as soon as the moratorium was over. They didn't wait till April 11th. But yeah, tenants don't know that. Like that, you get this scary-looking thing in the mail: notice to vacate. A lot of tenants, that's that's scary. And w what we're hearing is of people, we, we call it self-eviction, that people just get scared. They don't know their rights. It doesn't occur to them to find out what their rights are. 
they see that big scary letter in the mail and they they get out of there and yeah that's something we're working on is like educating ourselves as tenants and just the wider public as well yeah we've got to know our rights about these things don't self-evict yeah and what advice would you give for renters if they're looking for resources or any kind of guidance around dealing with landlords or property Mm. agents yeah the renters and housing union runs um, renters rights forums and i've found them to be very very educational if you look on the rahu website in the events section you'll see when one's coming up also the rahu website has an excellent faq section there was also a recent blog post about the changes from march 29th it's put pretty simply like a lot of this legalistic sort of stuff can be sort of intimidating but the way it's put on the rahu website is i think quite easy to understand also yeah there's online resources out there i think um Tenants Vic has some fact sheets that are informative. Yeah, there's a lot of information online now, which is good. Is there anything else you think people should be aware of? Rent increases are now legal again. During the eviction moratorium for the past year, it hasn't been legal to um, increase the rent, but now now that's on again. And, yeah, it looks like we're probably going to mount a campaign about that. Awesome. What are you calling for at the moment? We have three demands. One is to cancel rental debt that was accrued during the pandemic. The other one is no evictions. The other one is extend rental protections from the moratorium. Basically, what it all boils down to is that the poor shouldn't have to pay for the cost of the pandemic. It should be banks, real estates, the kind of wealthy landlords who own six properties. Why can't they pay? You know, we can't pay especially migrant workers who've got nothing, shouldn't be expected to pay. That was Farida from the Renters and Housing Union. You can check out the website for resources on renters' rights and support. Um, and we're just going to go to a track now by Ziggy Ramo. Um, so Ziggy grew up in remote Arnhem Land um, and has family connections in far north Queensland. And he um, writes songs about the injustices of Aboriginal Australians and heaps of other social justice issues and this track is called Black Lives Matter. That's the subject matter. Tell you climb and they burn down your ladder. Sick of playing games like snakes and ladders. Matter of fact, I'm like Michael Jack. I'm better. Now this journey got me learning like Charlie Perkins. Educated black man. Tired of soul searching. Tired of hurting. Tired of working and not earning. The same respect as my counterpart. My people in the death's bed by preventable heart disease. Served through rations brought from overseas. On ships full of convicts and common thieves. Same ships the one that brought my mother's jeans. Same ships the one that got me wearing jeans. Same ships brought scholarships to university. So I can be a doctor and fix my people. What's health when you're still not equal? The blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. The darker the skin, the quicker police shoot. Labeled as heroes that we all salute. But lest we forget our stolen youth. 
our history is a mystery, but I know a word for word, yeah, it's clear to me, so what's the way forward, what's the way forward, they throw us straight in jail, yeah, no court cases on cases, labeled as alcoholics and never racist, grab some shoe polish and paint the blackest faces, darker than the past, darker than our present, darker than the future that we're surely destined, cause it's all good, to call Mr. Good an ape as long as you're 13 and have a white face, but I ain't happy, man, that shit is a disgrace, no game, no cards to play, it's more than race. Australians all let us rejoice for we are young and free. My people die young in this country. And yet we are 25%, a quarter of those Australians, locked up in our prisons. And if you are a juvenile, it is worse, it is 50%. An Indigenous child is more likely to be locked up in prison than they are to finish high school. Should I be on my knees saying thank you? I be the statistic, I should be thankful. Right, wrong, I'm writing this song. Cause this shit has gone on for too long. I'm not over it, nor will I ever be. I refuse to use your memory. I refuse to lose our identity. Our ancestors died defending me. Defending the rights of racism is time wasting. Open up your eyes wide, it's time to face it. Open up your hearts and it's time to embrace it. If you motherfuckers don't, I'm empty and loaded cases. AK-47 is not my choice of weapon. I'm a throwing invisible spear and really get you threatened. Throw my blackness in your face without a warning message. Enough with this shit, can we please just end it? Yeah. It's time to end it. Hey. Yeah. It's time to end it. So that was Black Lives Matter by Ziggy Ramo. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. That's 8.55 a.m. The time is 7.59 a.m. We're going to play some audio from the protest that was on Saturday, um, protesting black deaths in custody. Um, Some incredible speeches were done on Saturday. Um, I believe not all of the families um, could be there, so some of the uh, speeches were read out. Um, obviously, they were in their respective states. Um, but you're going to be hearing from, I believe, April Day was emceeing the event. Um, April Day is the um, daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, um, who was one of the people that has lost their lives in um, custody. Uh, also, Crystal McKinnon reads out Michaela Reynolds, who is the sister of Nathan Reynolds. Um, just a little forewarning, um, just about... Uh, this audio, it is some heavy content, a really important content, but some heavy content. Um, so just be mindful and take care of yourselves while you're listening. Dudley, thank you, sis. Um, I now will hand over to Crystal, who will share the story of Michaela Reynolds, who's the sister of Nathan Reynolds. 
Nathan Reynolds is one of the 447 Aboriginal people who have died in custody over the last 30 years. But he is not just a statistic. He is forever remembered as a joker, a talented tradie, a typical boys boy and a big softie at heart. Nathan was our brother. He was a son, a father, a nephew and a grandson. He was deeply loved. Losing him has left a hole in our lives and we miss him every single day. It is soul crushing knowing that he was just 36 years old. Nathan died on a cold prison floor. We now know that he died of a preventable asthma attack because New South Wales Corrective Services and Justice Health failed to give him adequate health care. Nathan had lived with asthma for most of his life. He took his Ventolin and saw doctors regularly while he lived in the community. When he was sentenced to prison on a four-month fixed term, he lost access to that community-based health care. He was put in the hands of the Corrective Services and Justice Health. And in just four months, they watched his condition deteriorate enough to kill him. Nathan's death was preventable. Several times he went to the prison clinic and said he wasn't feeling well. It was never any secret that Nathan was an asthmatic. He was given multiple puffers, which should have been a major warning sign of his that his asthma was out of control. Yet his asthma was never noted in the prison's chronic disease screening system. He was given no consistent ongoing care for it. He had no asthma action plan. If anything, the prison system was sceptical of Nathan's medical needs. When he was dying of an acute asthma attack, the first nurse on scene gave him um, naloxone, an antidote for the drug overdose. In her evidence, she claimed she would react the same way to someone having a medical episode on the street. We reject this. We believe that Nathan was stereotyped as a drug user because he was in jail. He was seen as a prisoner, not as a person. Corrective officers walked to Nathan. They did not run. They took 11 minutes to arrive while our brother's wife hung in the balance. Once they arrived, their priority was security, not caring for Nathan. At the inquest, one officer said that in hindsight, the only thing he'd do different that day was to take a sickie. This was a disgusting thing for our family to have to hear. Nathan received emergency first aid, not from the prison staff, but from his fellow inmates. At the inquest, we were hoping to see accountability. We wanted the nurses and doctor who saw Nathan to be held accountable for their failings, not just with a slap on the wrist, but with real consequences. Unfortunately, we didn't see any individual accountability. If there was individual accountability, we might see less deaths in custody. Our family and the families of every single person in New South Wales prisons deserves to know about the progress and the outcomes. It's too late for us, but other families deserve to know that their loved ones are safe. Inmates should be believed when they say they are unwell. People should not die in prisons away from their loved ones. In the last month, there have been another five, sorry, in the last month, there have been, a, been another five deaths in custody. How many more Aboriginal people must die before their time due to the failings of the Justice Health and Corrective Services? We say no one. Not one single person has to die before their time because change is possible. 
Our family is calling on the New South Wales Government, Corrective Services and Justice Health today to make changes and hold people accountable for their actions, or should I say lack of actions. Just because the inquest is finished, our family's fight has not ended. We will continue to fight for justice until there are no more deaths in custody. Thank you. Um, this next speech is a horrific example of how traumatic the intergenerational trauma of Aboriginal deaths in custody is. This is from Aunty Jennifer Clayton, who is the mother of Warren Cooper and the nana for his daughter, Shadina Wayne. Enough is enough. I lost my son, Warren John Cooper, 20 years ago. And 20 years later, in 2019, I lost my granddaughter, Shadina. Wayne's daughter, I'm tired, but I will fight until I die for justice, for my loved ones. And I want the WA police to tell the truth and tell the truth and the needs to be told. No more lies. My family wants the truth and justice for my son and for my nana. This has to stop. Um, next up, um, we have Tanin uh, sharing the story um, from Ani, Carolyn Lewis. Um, Ani Karen Lewis is a family member of Miss Dew, so I'll read out her speech as well. Um, I've watched my families, my family for many years suffer in silence, who've lost loved ones in custodial deaths. We are, we are mourning forever. We wait for answers, inquiries and inquests for our families and we will tell our families the, the wrongs and the justice we deserve for our silenced loved ones that have passed. We are your voices and we'll fight for you forever, sending love to families who have lost members in the custodial spaces. Um, next, yeah, I'll introduce April. She will um, read out the demands of the family of the families. These demands have been worked on by the 15 families and together we have put these together and uh, putting this to the governments. Number one, governments need to fully implement all recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody while involving and listening to our families. Two, we need an independent investigative body to inquire into all deaths in custody. Police must not investigate other police officers or prison officers. <laughs> Number three. Governments need to reallocate public funding away from punitive policing and expansion of prisons and invest into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led grassroots solutions. We know what works for our communities. Allow all of our people in police cells access to custody notification services without delay. And the physical restraint, abuse and torture, including spit hooding and solitary confinement 
of all people in police and prisons. Number six, families deserve to know if their loved ones died in custody and that they will be heard, that there will be a timely, thorough and independent investigation and they deserve to be present at any public investigation of their loved one's death. This includes being provided with the means to attend all hearings. Families also deserve to know that their loved one's body is being treated in a respectful and cultural manner. Number seven, reduce imprisonment of our peoples by repealing punitive bail laws, mandatory sentencing and decriminalising public drunkenness. And to note that, the Victorian Government has made a commitment to the abolition of public drunkenness, but that is still 24 months away, so Aboriginal people are still at risk of dying in custody. Shame. Number eight, commit to raising the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 years. And have a minimum age of detention of 16. Our babies do not belong in prison. Number nine, we want governments to implement decarceration strategies including ending imprisonment of our mob who aren't sentenced, access to income support, ending homelessness, justice reinvestment and Aboriginal-led solutions. And number 10, we need federal funding for policing and prisons to be repurposed to meet the needs of our communities. That is a shorter version of our demands, but you can find uh, the full demands on the NATSL's website. I will now hand over to Uncle Robbie Thorpe. Thanks, April. So I want to um, pay my respects to the, um, our creator ancestor, Bunjil. This is the land of Bunjil. It's made up of a number of uh, clans, tribes, family groups. And we have a law here, by the way. We had an ancient law that governed this land and its people for hundreds of thousands of years before um, colonialism happened. And you've got to look at uh, this from a fundamental question of colonialism, what's happening to us today, why it's happening. And I think if you have a look at uh, the issue of genocide, if you look at the Act, you'll see that everything in that Act, Australia's guilty of, and there's no doubt about it, whether it's forced removal of our children, creating the conditions of life with intent to destroy causing serious mental harm, preventing deaths, uh, preventing births and killing us in custody. Deaths, killing our people. And it's important to remember this country hasn't got consent. Is that an issue here? Is that an issue in this country, the word consent? Because it is to Indigenous people too. Maybe that's the cause of all of our underlying problems that we've got here. Yeah. Australia is a monumental crime scene as far as I'm concerned. Terra nullis, a legal fiction. And what the hell is that? 
was described by their so-called High Court as the act of unutterable shame. Now let's unpack what that means, people. Do people know what unutterable shame means? Because that's what this country represents. Have a look at that hotel, the name of it. Have a look at that hotel, the name of it. You know, this is an occupied land and everybody lives in denial, which gives credibility to this operation behind us. No one does nothing about the, the premeditated criminal genocide which this country is built on. The acts of terror. Can you imagine? Now, we're a peacefully organised society, lives in harmony with all the other tribes on this vast continent, bigger than Europe. Not only in harmony with all of our people here, the animals with us too, our totems. Where are they? They're very important in the scheme of things here. They represent a divine law. Not that people understand much about that. Because this is a convict penal colony and it manifests from that. Right? There's never a consensual peaceful settlement here. And our people have been saying this is an invaded land and they've been trying to exterminate the original people, who are human beings, by the way. We're human beings. And we've got families, and we have the same feelings as probably all of you followers have too. And when we get our people murdered in custody the way they are, that's systemic. It's institutionalised. All this racism is. It's not so much the people. People are basically good. It's always the state. It's always the state, folks. They're the criminals. They manifest this. They allow their institutions to teach lies to their children. These kids were taught about Captain Cook discovering this country. Right? Lie number one. In fact, our, our fate was decided around the round table of England before they got here. This was called New Holland just prior before the British took it, right? So it's all lies, folks. Everything is a lie. Until you can deal with that lie in this country, we're not going nowhere. How come our people are in their custody? Have they got jurisdiction over the original people of this land? Can they demonstrate that jurisdiction? Can they show you? No, they can't. So it's all a crime, folks. Until you remove the criminal elements in this system, nothing's going to change. We're like hostages. It's like a domestic violence situation for our people. We live in that sort of situation our whole lives. We're profiled, intimidated, abused. You've got no idea what they do behind closed doors here, these people. Now, this country, you're standing knee-deep in blood. It's time to acknowledge that. That's all our families. We're all affected by it. Anyone who dies prematurely, as far as I'm concerned, my people in this country, occupied land, it's an act of genocide. Right? We're quite healthy people only 200 years ago, and so was our country. And that says a lot about who we are, too. That's who we are. We're not raping the land. We're not abusing people. We didn't do that. We didn't travel halfway around the world to attack somebody else and lie about it. How come everyone believes this? I thought Australia was the clever country, conscientious. 
And all I see, all of our misery is a huge industry built out of it. We really don't need you know, managing our children, our heritage, our inherent rights, our land, our culture. We don't need you to do that. Thanks, but we don't need you to do that. That is the gap. Now, we're entitled to a, part, a portion of this economics of our own land, aren't we? What happens to our peoples, it gets cut off. Well, all these middlemen in between, all this huge bureaucracy that steals that money and we're left destitute on the ground, the people on the ground, you know. And not all blackfellas are squeaky clean either in this country. We have this thing called native police forces whose history needs to be looked at because those native police killed more blacks in their custody than most people. So don't think it's a colour thing. It's, 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 it's about colonialism, capitalism globalism and that. And our people were used. All right? And we want to skip to that point too. Don't leave that out because it's very important to our people who murdered our ancestors while they were being paid by them. So that's an important part of this whole scheme of things. It's not over yet. And we're going, we're going to take this all away. This Truth Commission, hopefully, it's got some teeth, not like the United Nations and, and things like UNDRIP, and the United Nations Convention for the Prevention of Genocide, if that was a law here, none of this, we wouldn't be here today. What happened to the Convention to Prevent and Punish for, for the Crime of Genocide, Australia? You know, the whole um, Nazi episode was taken care of the same way. Right? So why doesn't it apply here? We don't need much more than that, other than that international laws like that to apply. But you know, there's, there's another layer of conspiracy there. You know, the international courts, you know, where they've been. So it's time to step up, folks. Now, we've got ju- just cause. This is a, a falsehood. All of this is built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. And that's why we all die in the jails today and have our children stolen and, and being oppressed and suppressed and repressed the way we are. We're quite capable of looking after ourselves. We can't even get a job in our own country. We haven't got decent housing. Look at the education. What a disgrace. What a disgrace. It starts with education too. And, that's, and I, I really just want to say thank you to all the people who gave up their Saturday, in spite of this weather, to stand with us. That's what's really important, folks. That, at the end of the day, that's what's really important. We're going to change this. I remember coming to these rallies back in the early 80s before the Royal Commission. And I remember taking uh, the Koori Youth Band to Roeburn in West Australia to play a benefit concert to John Pat's family. Now, we've been at this for a long time. I remember there was hardly a soul here when people died in custody. People will know who people are here. You know, it's been such a hard battle, long, hard battle for t- to get to this point. You know, we owe it to our ancestors... And we owe it to our children's children. All right? That's what we can do in this space here. And, it's a, and just remember, it's, it's a convict penal colony. That's the space we're in. We can do better, folks. All right? You stick with the law of this land, we can get rid of these criminals. We can have a brand new day for everyone, you know.
That was Robbie Thorpe finishing up there at the march on Saturday. Um, that was a march for uh, black deaths, uh, stopping black deaths in custody. And just to reiterate, um, you know, I think Mariki summed it up really well um, yesterday on uh, the show Black Block. But, you know, these are the voices that we should be amplifying at the moment, uh, the voices of the families and the voices of First Nations. And I think especially if, you know, um, as she was saying, you're a lawyer, academic or activist that's worked in this space, you know, it's um, don't speak for them and it's um, definitely time to just let them speak and voice their own experiences. Um, in terms of uh, signing the petition um, that they were talking about to stop black deaths in custody, um, we recommend you go to www.natsils, so that's N-A-T-S-I-L-S, dot org, dot A-U, slash B-L-M. Um, they also have the uh, demands uh, up on their website as well. And for more info, you can visit um, April Day's foundation, uh, the Dajua Foundation. So that's D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A.com.au. And you can also visit them on Facebook. Um, you can also tune in first uh, into Fire First tomorrow from 11 a.m. to hear more of Robbie Thorpe. Um, just before we wrap it up, we're going to... Um, give you some more updated news headlines. There's been some pretty recent things that have just come out. Yeah, so this has just come out on the AGES website as part of their investigation that um, minority shareholders of the Kerry Stokes shared 7 West Media have been kept in the dark about how $1.87 million of company funds was lent to executive Ben Robert Smith to fight war crime allegations. So I guess that kind of follows the 60-minute story on Sunday night about him. So I guess stay tuned to that. Yeah, I haven't been following that closely, but just that (laughs) in and of itself, like, seems so crazy. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. (laughs) I'm sure there'll be much more coming throughout the day. Um, And also, I guess, just in line with um, Black Deaths in Custody, especially going to the US where obviously um, this is an extremely big issue for them as well. Um, There's been protests that have broken out um, in Minnesota uh, following the shooting and killing by police of uh, Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota um, on Sunday. Uh, Protests broke out in the suburb of Minneapolis, where one of the most watched police trials in recent memory is playing out. That would be the one for George Floyd. Um, Police on Monday said the shooting appeared to be an accidental discharge and the officer had intended to use a taser, but mistakenly drew a handgun. Um, And obviously tensions are already high for the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, which is one of the um, police officers that um, was... Um, accused of murdering George Floyd um, earlier, sorry, last year in July. Um, I mean, after a city has, I guess, been through so much already, and I think they're rearing off the other end of the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, Protests have just been going since Sunday, pretty much. Um, Police have shot rubber bullets and tear gas into the crowd, 
which they said through rocks and other objects. But, I mean, the scene is pretty telling of what was happening last year as well. Yeah, and apparently he was pulled over um, for having air fresheners dangling from his rearview mirror, which is illegal in Minnesota, um, because he spoke to his mum as he was being pulled over. Oh, my God. I, yeah, that's... <laughs> I mean, even there was um, earlier, uh, like last week or something, police pulled over um, a, a, a black man in his army uniform in a car and, oh. like, pepper sprayed him through the window. Yeah, and he, keep, he kept saying he was a lieutenant. Yeah. Um, then they started addressing him as lieutenant, but still... Pepper spraying him. Yeah, just like had no reason. I mean, it's. Cr- I mean, to, like I'm sure everyone else is feeling the same way. It's crazy to me just because of the conversation, of the media coverage, of all of this stuff that's happened in the last few months. Um, and I guess it's kind of still being handled in this way and still kind of being addressed in this way and police behavior and that kind of thing. So, I mean, as we kind of mentioned at the start of the show, it's an exhausting conversation that still needs to be had. Um, yeah. So I reckon we're going to wrap it up with a song. I'm so excited to play this song. (laughs) Um, so one of my favorite Nam based artists, Pookie, um, has a new EP out um, just literally came out yesterday, so it's so fresh. <laughs> um, Apugi is a Kenyan-born South Sudanese um, artist hailing from the West Side. Um, has dropped, just dropped this new EP called Dinka Girl. Uh, she blends powerful lyrics with hip-hop and R&B beats, making you literally just want to bop and sing along. Um, Pookie's absolutely killing it um, and is definitely, I think, defining Nam's hip-hop scene at the moment. Um, This is one of the first tracks on the EP. Um, It's titled Mad, and I think it's also pretty relevant of um, what's happening at the moment in terms of the conversation in the media. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know an emu and a kangaroo can never move backwards? That is precisely the reason why they chose to use these two animals on the Australian coat of arms. To symbolise the nation moving forward, never backwards. So, um, why the hell did we let Paul and Hanson back in Parliament? We have heard this woman attacking every single minority group, starting with the Indigenous Australians. She went on to attack the Islamic community, talking about ban the burqa, ban halal products. Okay, Pauline, I know why you want to ban halal products. You're like 90% pork. She went on to attack the Asians, and that's when I started thinking, I better make myself more Aussie. So I went out and got myself a house in the pool. And now to fit in, all I gotta do is learn how to swim. I've been emo. I'm walking down the street, look to my left. The only thing I see is the death of his dignity. Yes, definitely. The side is stupid, wicked. You must agree. If you don't, let me break it down. A to Z. You can hold a gun, but can't take a knee. You can hold a gun, but can't take a knee. This is not Aquarius, the sweetest. 
you be thinking we the scariest when we manifest the revolutionary west you can comprehend the fact you uninvited guests yet you first screams and then back i am not impressed baby your supremacy is putting me to the test baby you call me ugly then you want me to undress baby you don't even understand why you so obsessed baby with the same people that you keep oppressed baby don't even care to see if my heart is blessed baby don't even care that you put me under the stress baby that's my baby you put on arrest baby mom baby you putting holes in chest baby mom baby you laying down the rest baby mom baby who wasn't even tired the one your lady decided i know that's why you mad That was a little snippet of Pookie's new song, Mad, from her new EP, Dinker Girl. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning, Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Tune in tomorrow for Wednesday Breakfast, and we'll see you all next week. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.